Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Danielle Tresoni. She is the author of The Fortress, A Love Story. It is her second memoir. Uh, her first was Falling Through the Earth. It came out a while back. Uh, that one was about her father. This one was about a marriage, and as you'll see over the course of the conversation, it is a very turbulent, li almost literally a gothic story. <laughs> um, it, I mean, uh, it takes place in a medieval castle in France. Yeah, well, actually, it's a 13th century Knights Templar fortress at the center of an old village. It sounds spooky and, and scary, and in some ways, it was when we moved in, <laughs> and it became more so as through the course of our time there. The, the book gradually, I think, becomes more gothic-feeling. In the beginning, it's a love story, right? The, the subtitle of the memoir is It's the Fortress, a Love Story, and it's the story of my relationship with my now ex-husband. The beginning is very bright, I think. We met, fell in love, had a sort of whirlwind romance, ended up getting married, having a child, when there were troubles in the relationship, which developed, you know, pretty quickly, and we decided, well, actually, it was a few years after those troubles began that we decided to move to France to try to start over. And so this is the book about the relationship, but also about what happened in France. Yeah, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty in, in all these sorts of things, but... In reading this, when you talk about like so the early signs of trouble, the ones that prompted the move to France to sort of like reboot and re and save the the marriage, you know, even in the courtship, I think a lot of people will be reading this, you know, saying to themselves and, and possibly saying to you as you go around the country talking about this, it's like, how could you miss these signs? <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's such a good question because you know I think we all have different sort of orange origins. My first book was about my relationship, which was very unusual with my father, who was a Vietnam vet. I grew up with a tolerance for eccentricity, bad behavior, you know, wild goings on that I think a lot of people didn't have that in their background. So I met um, my ex-husband when I was fairly young, and I was still coming out of those experiences with my father. I hadn't yet written that book. And I think that some people, for me in particular, um, I can say for sure, develop a sort of, I would, don't want to say addiction, but a tolerance for drama, right? Mm -hmm. And when it isn't happening, when your life isn't full of drama, you kind of create it. And so when I met um, Nikolai, my ex-husband, he was the most dramatic, romantic, almost storybook kind of person that I had ever met. And I went right for it. There were signs, of course, that, you know, this wasn't the best person for me. And I just sort of, you know, ignored them until I came to a point where I couldn't ignore the, them anymore. And we were together for maybe six months when he had some problems with so just a little back of the backstory, he's a Bulgarian writer, pianist, and ex-Buddhist monk who came to the United States on a, a program at the University of Iowa as a writer. I was a student at the Iowa Writers Workshop. We met there, fell in love, moved in together, and he, about six months into the relationship, he told me that he had to go back to his home country of Bulgaria to renew his visa, and I went with him thinking we were going to be there, you know, maybe the summer, not long. And it ended up that we were there for two years. When I was in Bulgaria with him, it became very clear that, yeah, there's some problems here. You know, so one of the first things that he says to you as you're starting to see each other is, yeah, don't ever leave me. You know, I, I, need, I need you in my life. And he essentially emotionally blackmailed you into going to Bulgaria in the first place. 
let alone staying there for two years with your infant son from your first marriage. True. I mean, I think for, for me, growing up, and also sort of framing my life in a way that big love mattered. You know, like um, my relationship with my father was very intense. We were really close. When I lost that, I was always sort of looking. I mean, I don't want to blame all of this on my parents, of course. You know, looking for a relationship that was big enough to keep me interested. And if any, you know, of all the faults that my ex-husband had, he he had big stories. He was a writer who had lived all over the world and kept me interested in that way. Emotionally, though, it was, you're right, it was, it wasn't clear to me at the time. It's clear to me now that, he, you know, he was a very needy person who wanted to keep me sort of in a position where he could control and manipulate me, actually. I think that's the thing about these kinds of abusive, controlling relationships, uh, is that you, you don't really see it when it's happening. Maybe you have like sort of a, a vague sense of unease that you can't really identify, but as you said, you know, you were attracted to the drama, so you were working with that. And it's only like once you finally managed to escape that you can look back at that and see more clearly like what he was doing to you. Right. Actually, it was in the writing of this book that I was able to see that. Even um, in the many years where I was deeply unhappy in the relationship, even when we went to France, I couldn't actually identify what was going on. And that seems astonishing to me now. But writing, you know, for a lot of memoirists, I have a feeling that people who are listening to this are interested in memoir and maybe there's a lot of memoir writers out there. I think one of the the reasons we go to memoir as writers and as readers is that the memoir as a form helps us put our life in order. It's not just a story, a good story, right? It's not just like this happened and then this happened, but it's a reflection on how story organizes our existence and how we live within those stories and how we fool ourselves or how we succeed or, or how we fail based on the stories we tell ourselves. For me, I, I wasn't able to see these patterns, my own culpability in the situation even, which I'm not saying I'm 100% innocent. It was a 50-50 sort of deal here. And I wasn't able to see that part either until I wrote the book. So the book for me was really life-changing. Right. There's actually something that you write in connection with your first memoir. You write about it in The Fortress. You talk about how writing about your relationship with your father, you know, people would often ask you, it's like, well, was that cathartic for you? And you say, well, in a way it was, but it isn't actually about getting all this stuff out of you. It's about sitting down and taking all this stuff back into you and sitting with it and understanding it in a way that you never did before. Absolutely. So for the first memoir, it took 10 years to write that book. I wrote it first as a novel. Didn't, you know, that never sold. I threw it away. I was a history student and had written all sorts of, you know, papers about the Vietnam War. Anyway, the, the book is about my dad who was a Vietnam vet. So it took 10 years to write that. And it was a very careful and deliberate process of going in, of teaching myself to go in. Interestingly enough, the fortress took a lot. You know, it wasn't as long of a process, but it was equally intense, but just condensed of going in. I find that memoir as a form for me, because I've written two novels as well, memoir as a form for me is really, aside from being a wonderful piece of art and narrative, is for me a tool to understand and organize experience and, and share it with people who may be in a situation that's somewhat similar or even not, but recognize what that feels like. And in fact, it was the success of your first novel that enabled you to pack up and move to a fortress in the south of France in the first place. And that actually you know, brings up one of the big tension points in the relationship. Yeah, you know, here's a guy who 
from day one has been trying to emotionally manipulate you and control you and keep you under his thumb. And for various reasons, you are the much more successful in a two-author couple. I know. think that's the key. Those yeah. are the key words right there, the <laughs> yeah. two-author couple. I think that when two creative people get together, especially if they're in the same field as writing or two actors, for example, whatever, crazy things can happen. There's a lot of synergy and there's a lot of ideas flying back and forth and you feed off of each other in a very creative way that can be very healthy or, on the other hand, can be really destructive. In the beginning, I hadn't when I met Nikolai, I hadn't published a thing. I was a young writer in graduate school. He had two novels already published that were bestsellers in Bulgaria. He had a third one on the way. I admired that. I admired him. And he also, you know, to give him credit, he supported my efforts. He would say, you know, one day you're going to be great. You're a good writer. And so that was really encouraging. I think he never thought that um, my star would rise and eclipse his in some ways. I mean, life isn't over. It's a marathon, right? He, mm-hmm. There's lots of possibilities for everyone to, you know, write new books and, and have more success. But the success of Angelology really, I think, in our dynamic, set us off balance. He wasn't quite able to deal with that, and it created a lot of tension in our relationship, especially because his reaction, rather than sort of stepping up and being supportive, was to try to undermine uh, my position, which was really quite hard. I want to be clear to anyone who's listening to this, just to put this right out there about the memoir. I mean, this is textbook gaslighting to the point that, you know, you will be reading this book and you will see him do things and you will say, girl, you are being gaslighted. I didn't know that term actually until after this book was written and someone read it and said to me and sent me an article actually and said, this is what he's doing. And it was a huge revelation to me. I had no idea that there was even a term. I don't know. I mean... I wish that I had, people say, I wish I had known, you know, what I know now. I wish I had known to go get real help and to talk to it about, talk to about, you know, someone about what was going on in my life. But, um, you know, this is another part of my character that led to my downfall in, you know, in this memoir is that I was very independent. I didn't want to show people that I was... There was a weakness in my life. I didn't want to admit that I was failing at my marriage. And so I just sort of sucked it up and tried to make it work. And then there's also a question, too, of who you can turn to. Because, you know, we were talking before I turned on the recorder about how we had met years ago when you were still married and when you both had books coming out right around the same time and so you were doing interviews together as a literary couple obviously i only spent an hour with the two of you so it's not like i was going to pick up on anything but you presented yourselves as a happily married literary couple oh for sure but you know even those people who were close to you you know before you moved halfway around the world you know you write about how in some ways if they did notice anything they knew that if they came to you you were just going to dig in your heels and do what you wanted to do anyway? I mean, you know, there's one thing to say that I wish someone had intervened, but then there's the other, you know, on the other hand, there's my personality where I'm pretty driven and and set on what what I see as my path. So you're right about that. I mean, who, who, and also is it other, is it anyone else's place to intervene in my marriage? This is something that I had to come to. Um, this realization had to be my own, which is the whole point of the memoir. But just to go back to your point that, On the exterior, we looked like happily married, you know, successful couple, right? Like that we were, our marriage was working well. This is the central metaphor of this book. I think a lot of people and a lot of relationships 
we create the illusion of strength, you know, the idea of a fortress that, you know, we're really strong on the outside and we don't let anyone see what's really going in until everything breaks apart and then it all comes out. And that happens over and over again. How many times have we seen this, you know, with celebrity couples or even with friends that we know, um, where it's like, wow, I thought that that was an amazing relationship and, and I had no idea that the center was so rotten and that everything would fall in. Um, well, that was what was going on with our relationship. Being successful, people don't like to show that things aren't working. And that's, it's a problem in our culture, too, that we all expect perfection. It's really kind of ridiculous. I don't think it's any spoiler to say that as we've talked about, you moved to France to try to make the marriage work, to get away from everything and, and start over again. And it just, it did not take. Not no. in the slightest. No, understatement of the year. <laughs> Didn't work. Yeah. Uh, we spent four years there. It's not like we went there and like realized right away it wasn't going to work and left. I put all of my eggs in that basket. I wanted it to work so badly. Invested the, mo the money I had made basically put into this house and into this and all the emotional energy I had into this relationship. And it just didn't get better. It actually got worse and worse. Um, I think the isolation of moving to a small medieval village in a remote and very rural part of France played into it. But also the success of the novel, you know, and his lack of success. He had another book come out that didn't do well. It just became a sort of uh, whirlwind, you know. It just sort of became a furious situation where we couldn't stay there. It wasn't going to work. As it deteriorated, you know, one of the things that really locked into place for me is, we talked about the gaslighting a little bit before, was when you finally hit the breaking point and you said, that's it, this isn't, you know, there's no way to save this. I want out. And he immediately turns around and says, okay, you're going to give me what I want, or I'm going to portray you to the outside world as a drug-addicted, suicidal, bipolar, nuts person. Yeah, which he did, mm -hmm. which he did do. It was a sort of propaganda campaign uh, amongst our friends and family members who all got emails from him, were all taken aside and, and given this sort of alternate history of our relationship and of, of my character and of, of me. That wasn't the worst of it. I mean, the other parts of the, you know, the other part of this was that he was going to, you know, take the kids and all the money and, and take the, you know, it was just like threat, 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 threat. So by the end of it, it was uh, completely exhausting. And it was also very clear to me, we don't need to necessarily get into too many specifics because we do want to maintain some spoilers. We, we yeah. do want people to do it. But as I was saying, so he's trying to portray you as the unstable one when, at least based on the portrait here, he is the one who, if neither one of you is necessarily a paragon of stability and virtue, he is the one who is much further off the rails. Well, I'll just say, I mean, you know, what I can say is mm -hmm. that I'm the one that was keeping us together financially. I was the one that was keeping us on schedule with the kids. I was the one that was making our plans. There's a lot of things that I was doing that were keeping our life very regular. That for me helped get me through, you know, that for me was a kind of sanity to keep us on this sort of schedule. So looking back, it's all, it's all kind of amazing to me. And uh, one wonderful part about having just, you know, published this book is for me, this closes a, a chapter in my life, literally. And I'm just going to try to forget it <laughs> now that I've written about it. Yeah. Once the tour is over. Right. <laughs> so you had, you had mentioned before that this one took much less time to write than your first one. It still took a long time. Right. It, it took three years. 
you know, of, of study writing. And it was the, it was twice as long almost, not twice, it was like 475 pages at one point. I cut it way back, you know, went through many, 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 many revisions and drafts and et cetera. It, so I'm not saying that it was easy, mm-hmm. but I think that in that 10 year pro- process of trying to write my first memoir, I taught myself how to write memoir. So I recognized what I was doing. It was a little bit more natural than the first time around. In the time that you're that you are writing about here, particularly in the second half of the time, you know, you were writing Angelology, you were writing the sequel. As your marriage was falling apart, you it doesn't sound like you were sitting there thinking it's like I've got to get this down. No, no. I mean, I didn't. When I wrote this, I obviously went back and made a timeline with everything I had, emails and and various other things. But I wasn't keeping a diary of this. This is all reconstructed from basic from memory and legal documents and various other things that I have. You know that about that period. No, what I did during this period is I buried myself in my work. I think Angelology was such an intense novel, precisely because that all of you know it was the thing that was keeping me going, was going to my desk every day and writing. The memoir depicts a very traumatic, prolonged traumatic experience. As you say, this is also the period when, you know, you were raising two small kids, you were having, you know, great success as a writer. So there are positive things to gain out of this experience. Oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me or for a... For you, I guess. For me. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm... I'm a really positive person, actually, you know, about this experience. I don't, I'm not, I don't feel bitter. The book isn't written in, with a sort of negative spin or a bitterness. For me, this book portrays what life can be, you know, there were a lot of negative, obviously there's a lot of negative, negative things that happen, but I came out of this completely happy. Um, I made a piece of art out of an experience that could have been devastating, I remember when I was I sold so the we sold I sold the fortress after all of this and I remember when I was packing up before I left a woman that I knew in the village said you know some people could never recover from this because we basically lost everything and I you know I just decided that that's not going to happen to me you know I'm not going to be devastated by this that's the you know something that happened to me I've learned so much from it hopefully what I've learned is in this book and this book will be out there in the world and create something good. We had talked a little bit before about the sort of like the impact of these types of stories of failed relationships, massively imploding relationships. You know, we are recording this conversation about a week after the Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie news. And that was the same week that you went out to start talking to the world about the yeah, fortress. the same day. The same These day. sort of coincidences like seem to follow me around. No, the very same day that the book was published, that announcement was made. And it, whatever, right, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not someone who follows celebrity marriage very often, but I have to say it's another instance, for me anyway, of just how we perceive other people's lives and how sort of the national fairy tale for some people is that there, there are people who just have perfect marriage and things always just work out in a fairy tale sort of way. Well, clearly that's false. Um, nobody lives that, like that. Everyone has problems. People can negotiate those problems with each other or they can't. You know, that's just life. And I think, you know, it's important for people who are living in an unhappy relationship to, to understand that that's normal. There aren't people out there who are like superhuman, happy people who have perfect marriages. And also, too, that it's possible to fully extricate yourself. 
totally. from these early I mean, yeah. yeah. I kind of admire in some ways Angelina Jolie, like, cutting off, how quickly it all happened and cutting off, she's cut off communication and there's no text messages or anything. Like, they, it's interesting, right? Like, different techniques. I, on the other hand, this memoir follows me as I stayed in my house with him and my kids. And I remember after this all happened and I started speaking to a lawyer about it, she was like, oh, yeah, that's a War of the Roses. We see those all the time. Like, these people staying in the house and there's this fight. Like, that was probably the most destructive thing I could have done. It would have been better to just get up and, like, walk away and say, keep everything I'm out of here but you know people have different ways of extricating themselves and I think you're right that you can and you can do it relatively well without ending up being completely decimated in the end because here we are three four years later now four uh, years four years later now he's completely in the rearview mirror yeah no I don't even know I haven't spoken to him for about four years no idea what he thinks of it or what he's telling people yeah, no, I'm, you know, he can have his story, he can have his version and his story and I can have mine. And life is good for you now. Yeah, life is pretty good. I'm living here in New York. Yeah, I just got, I got remarried. So yeah, it's been, things have been good. Are you back to fiction now? Yes, I'm working on a novel right now. Okay. And I'll probably, hopefully I won't have a subject, subject for another memoir. <laughs> Still in the angelology world or? No, this one is not. I've put that series on hold for the moment, even though I have a lot of people who want me to do the last book. And I will do the last book at some point, but I'm interested in other things. Is it, and, and if this is too personal, just, you know, we can, we can always shut this line of questioning down. Mm -hmm. As I was reading the memoir and learning about the way that he was talking to you about spirituality and mm -hmm. magic and mysticism and having read Angelology, you know, it felt like in some ways a lot of the themes of Angelology and its sequel were sort of like, intermingled with what was going on in your marriage at the time. For sure. Well, all of I think fiction necessarily grows out of the writer's experiences in some way. And I remember when this book was published, people were like, this is so out there. Like, where did this come from? And little did people know that my, my life, like my personal life, was very much filled with this sort of talk and this sort of, these sorts of um, ideas. Also, I mean, just on a, you know, physically, um, I, drew, I drew inspiration from Bulgaria. That's in that novel. And a lot of the historical elements that I learned about when I was in Bulgaria. So that totally came, you know, from, from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Is it sort of a case of getting back into that world of, the, of that fictional world is, is so tightly connected to that period? Well, that's really interesting. Also, because mm -hmm. the second book was written during the really bad part of my marriage. Angelology was written in Providence, Rhode Island, when we were still in the States. Things weren't perfect, but I was, you know, we were in a better place than we were at the very end. The last book was written um, at the very end. So, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it, but you're right. I mean, there's a little bit of a, an echo of a period of time in my life that I'm not exactly happy to revisit in those books so maybe that's why I can't go back to it but we'll see I mean you know that's the wonderful thing about books is they're, the first two are going to be there and people can then you know read the third one when it's out well that will be something to look forward to whatever world and clearly sounds like it will be a much happier world that you are immersed in in the meantime there is The Fortress A Love Story 
I've been talking with the author, Danielle Trasoni, and you have been listening to Life Stories. If you liked what you heard, I hope you might go to iTunes and rate it, give it a bunch of stars, maybe write it a nice review, and that'll just make it a little bit easier for other people to find the podcast and listen to it down the line. You can also subscribe to it through iTunes, and then you'll be notified as new episodes come out. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening. I hope to join you again soon. Take care.